You may be seated. If you have your Bible, will you turn with me now to the letter of James, right after the letters of Paul and the letter to the Hebrews. Today's text is going to be found on page 9 in your bulletin. So, you know, I started preaching beginning of 2020 on James, got seven sermons in, the world kind of blew up. It was clearly time to change course and do something else for about a year. And now I thought, well, I'd like to get back to James. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to try to pick up where I left off, John Calvin style. I'm actually just going to go back and start over. It's worth hearing these, some of these things again. I've reworked the material, and I think it'll be fruitful. But <laughs> here we are, back in James. What a, what a book. Um, let's uh, just pick it up in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. And now, Lord, work in us, even as your word enters our ears, let your spirit enter our hearts. In Jesus we ask, amen. So of all the uh, 21 letters in the New Testament, I think James probably tends to get some of the most attention. And I've pondered why that is. Um, How many of you have read the book of James in the last year? Well, if you know the book at all, it's, I think some people are attracted to it because it's a fairly understandable book. Unlike Paul, who can drive you a little crazy, um, this is a very practical book. It's very pithy. You know, if, if Paul and James were alive today, Paul would be like a long-form podcaster, and James would be big on Twitter. That's kind of how I think about them. Like, James just has a way of kind of putting things really crisply, and people like that. For some people, in our church circles especially, people are attracted to James because he's controversial, you know, Paul just hammers this idea, we're saved by grace alone without works. And James says, oh, actually, you're saved, you're justified by works. And you, there's all this debate. How do you put Paul and James together? But I think actually both of those readings of James really miss what I want to talk about in this series. They miss what I would describe as oceanic depths beneath James's sort of deceiving brevity. He speaks crisply, but man... <laughs> What's under the tip of the iceberg? And, and what he has to say is speaks just so profoundly to us right now in our moment in history. Because what he basically wants his readers to understand, his weak, as you'll see, scattered, fragile little band of readers, he wants them to understand you are the nucleus of God's new creation. You are the nucleus of God's new creation. And that new creation is going to replace the powers of the old world that opposes God and opposes you. And we're already in the opening verse plunged into those depths. And actually, verse one's all we're going to have time for today. I'm just going to kind of lay some background here so we can understand some kind of big pieces before we get into the rest of the, of the letter. 
I want to talk about the author, and I want to talk about the audience for a few minutes. So the letter opens with the, the word, the name, James, Jacobos. Now, this name, James, occurs 42 times in the New Testament. Only uh, two of the people referred to are actually significant. There are a few Jameses that kind of they appear and vanish. They're not remarked upon. But there are two Jameses in the New Testament who actually have some significance. One of them, you'll probably remember, is one of the sons of Zebedee, the brother of John. And the other James, I don't know if you know this, the other significant James in the New Testament is actually the brother of Jesus, part of his actual biological family. Now, if you look at Mark chapter 6, you will find that Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. It's not totally clear whether Jesus was the oldest or whether possibly Joseph had a children from another marriage. There's dispute about this, but J- Jesus had at least four brothers, and he had at least two sisters, so it was a fairly big family, and there is some indication that Mary might have been widowed when she was still fairly young, so these youngsters had a very challenging life. They would have lived in pretty poor conditions. They did not have any kind of glamorous existence at all, and what's interesting about Jesus' brothers and sisters is they were not believers in him during his earthly ministry. Some of you know what it's like. Some of the hardest people to convince are your family members. Well, Jesus found that true as well. His brothers were not, and sisters were not at all on his side during his ministry, really. Um, but by the time Jesus goes back to the Father and we have the day of Pentecost where he pours out the Holy Spirit, we find his brothers and his family listed among his disciples, so James, one of his brothers, by the time Pentecost, you know, Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, gone back to the Father, and the Spirit's poured out. And by that time, James is a believer. Part of the reason why James is a believer by then may be that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, Jesus personally appeared to him. And I think I said to you the first time around with this, you know, if your dead brother shows up and asks you out for coffee, it has a weird way of adjusting your worldview. <laughs> so James is like, okay, you know, Jesus, you're, you're back. Um, so he's a believer in this one who is the, in fact, Son of God in flesh and the Messiah of Israel. Now, which of these two, which of these James is uh, John's brother, the son of Zebedee, or the Lord's brother, which of them wrote this letter? Well, to evaluate that, remember the, uh, th- this is ho- easy to miss as you're just kind of working through the Gospels and then jump right to the book of Acts. Um, it is easy to miss how fast things happened in those early days of the church. You know, if you're just reading through, let's say, Luke's gospel, and then you jump to Acts, it feels like you've jumped to a whole new book, and so you kind of think there's this major time gap. That's actually not true, and as we think about the speed of this, it'll help us figure out which James probably wrote this. Pentecost is actually less than two months after Jesus is resurrected. Now, we just think about that for a minute. Right now, it's what? Almost late March. So imagine if, like, in January, an event had happened. Imagine an event that happened in January. I don't know, storming of the Capitol, maybe, you know. So not that long ago, right? I mean, you know, it's not that long. This is, this is fairly shortly after Jesus is resurrected. Stephen's death, you remember Stephen? He's the, he's the young man who uh, was the first martyr of the church, stoned by the same council that killed Jesus. That, um, that probably happened within six months of Jesus' resurrection. And it was that event, Stephen's death, as he preaches to the council, the Jewish council, and they stone him to death, it was that event that launched a mighty persecution against the church that scattered them. So within six months of Jesus being raised, the Jerusalem church is being scattered out. And Saul of Tarsus, who, of course, when Stephen was martyred, is standing there holding the clothes of the people who are stoning him, saying, you know, bring it on, let's kill these Christians. He's converted within about a year of Jesus' resurrection. 
And so it's during this first year, a lot going on as this church, these you know, now thousands of Christians who are in Jerusalem, they weren't called Christians yet, but they were followers of Jesus, followers of the Christ. They are kind of exploding out of Jerusalem because they're being persecuted and even put to death. But a core of, of Jewish believers stayed in Jerusalem as the Jerusalem church. And almost immediately, within the first few months after Jesus was resur- went back to the Father, his brother James started to take a leadership role in those believers who stayed in Jerusalem. So that by the time Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, now he's Paul, he, he's been converted, he's come to Christ. By the time he visits Jerusalem for the first time, this is about three years after he becomes a believer, the only two apostles, the only two leaders he meets in Jerusalem are Peter and James the Lord's brother. You can look at that in Acts 9 and in Galatians 1. So James the Lord's brother, not the son of Zebedee, but the Lord's brother, really kind of skyrockets to a pretty big leadership role in the Jerusalem church. Meanwhile, what's interesting in the early chapters of Acts is that nothing is said about the son of Zebedee, James the son of Zebedee. In fact, the next we hear after, next we hear of that James in the book of Acts, he is killed, beheaded by Herod Agrippa in around the year AD 44, about probably about 10 years after Paul was converted. So you kind of have the opening of the book of Acts, the 12 apostles are listed there, but then you don't hear about the son of Zebedee again until he's killed by Herod Agrippa. So, uh, you know, a decade or so later. But meanwhile, the Lord's brother, James, goes on to even more leadership, uh, prominent leadership in that church. He's called a pillar of the church by Paul. And when they have this big debate in Acts 15 about whether or not Gentile Christians need to be circumcised, James is a major voice in resolving that controversy. So just even looking at, at kind of the history, that sketch of history, you can see that the Lord's brother, James, is really prominent in the early church, and that would argue that he probably wrote this letter. But I want to even now turn to look at the audience, which he calls here the 12 tribes of the dispersion, and show you even more a bit about this brother of the Lord and, and why I think we can, we can safely say he authored this letter. So <clears throat> he says you'll notice in verse 1, and I actually read on further, but if you look at chapter 1 as a whole, he, in this opening chapter, James says four things about his readers that give us a little bit of a sense of context here. He calls them, in verse 1, the 12 tribes. Now, that's, that's important, because that means that these, these people he's writing this letter to, they are either Jews, or they are extremely familiar with the Jewish religion. I think we could probably safely say, these are Jews who believe in Jesus. They're, he calls them the 12 tribes, and they would have immediately understood what that meant. He secondly says, in verse 1, that they are scattered. That's what the word dispersion means. So they're scattered Jews. We find out in verse 2 they are suffering Jews, the third thing he says. So they're scattered, suffering Jews. And if you look all the way in verse 18 of chapter 1, he calls them a kind of first fruits of God's creation. Kind of like the first sheaf you bring in out of the field of a new creation God is doing. Now those first three, Jews, scattered, suffering, Those perfectly fit Jewish believers from the time that they were initially scattered out of Jerusalem as Saul of Tarsus is trying to kill them all. And then over like 10 years, they're they're out still kind of running from the Jews. And then eventually, about 10 years later, Herod Agrippa starts going after them. And he kills John, uh, uh, James, the Lord, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and, and, and imprisons Peter. You remember that story where 
lots going on. So over that 10-year period, the Jews who had fought, who decided to believe in, you know, they believed in Jesus, and they decided to follow him and be faithful to him. This is a hard time. They're, they're, you know, the Jews are, Jews just hate them, and Herod, the political powers after them, and then there's a famine that happens in this period. So they're, they're just in a hard time. They, they are, they're Jews, you know, by background, but they follow Jesus the Messiah, and now they're scattered. They're homeless, many of them, you know. Imagine just being displaced and you know, who are your people? Like, where are you safe if the Romans and the Jews don't have much use for you? So there was a lot of, it was just, you know, depending on where they were, it was a really hard time, and then there was this famine that struck. And so they, it, this description in, in chapter 1 fits very nicely into this early period of the church, the very period in which James, the Lord's brother, is becoming the pastor, at least a major pastor, in the Jerusalem church. And so the letter just kind of beats with this pastoral heart I mean, if, if we had a persecution where people were trying to kill all of you and you were on the run and I didn't know where you were, you're out running around the states and, you know, I didn't know where you were and I was writing a letter, you know, a circular letter to send out and hopefully it reaches you guys. I mean, I'd be really just concerned about how your hearts are doing. Are you, you know, are you strong in the faith? And that's James. He, he's, he's a good pastor. He's worried about his sheep. Now, two of the descriptions that he uses of the four that I've given you Two of them, I think, really help us to understand then what he wants to say. Hopefully, I've given you kind of an idea of what the situation is for these early Jewish believers. But now I want to just look at two of those terms, and it'll help you understand what James is going to just bring forth from his heart. The first is this phrase, the 12 tribes. I've already talked a little bit about this, but basically when James says 12 tribes, that's a code phrase. And it's a code phrase where he's saying to these scattered readers, you're the real Israel. You are the tribes. In God's eyes, you're the, you're the 12 tribes. And that means that this, things have shifted. It means that those leaders in Jerusalem who have gone after Jesus for his entire ministry, they, they, nothing but opposition. I mean, a few like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus eventually came to faith, but by and large, the Jewish council, what we call the Sanhedrin, was just after Jesus all the time. And then they killed him. And then when they, you know, understood that he'd been raised from the dead and they even witnessed the events of Pentecost, then they start trying to kill his followers. They have, they have forsaken the God of Israel. They are no longer the true Israel of God. That's what James is saying. It's kind of a code phrase you're the 12 tribes. You Jews who follow Jesus the Messiah, you are the, you're the real Israel. Now, try to imagine absorbing this when you're reading this letter. Because all the power is with the Jews, you know, the apostate Jewish structure back in Jerusalem. I mean, the, the, if you guys ever seen drawings of the Herodian temple that Herod the Great built for the Jews? absolutely colossal, beautiful structure, and all the priests and the scribes and this whole, you know, tradition of law and prophets, and they had money and they had power, and they, like that is clearly where all the ballast is. And James is saying, no, in the eyes of God, you, you weak, scattered, almost helpless, marginalized Jewish followers of Jesus, you are the fulfillment of God's plan for Abraham. Everything God has promised, going back to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and the prophets, it all comes to fruition in you. You're the 12 tribes. And that is going to help us understand two themes throughout this letter that we're going to see come up again and again. And once you understand who, to whom James is writing and how he under, what he understands them to be, you'll understand these two themes. One of the themes that's going to come up again and again in the letter is, 
is you're going to find Pastor James speaking very, very positively about Torah. Torah, the, 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 word we, the Hebrew word for the law of God. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, when you listen to Paul write about the law, the Torah, it, it's, it's often not very, seems very negative. James, on the other hand, is very, very positive toward the Torah as he writes to these readers. And the reason for that is because he understands something. These Jewish followers of Jesus are the ones who really keep the law of God. If you want to keep the law of God, if you want to obey the law of Moses, you have to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you know how you do that? You love Jesus. You want to love God? You want to love the God of Israel? You want to love the God of Abraham? You need to love Jesus, the Messiah, whom he has sent. And you do. And that's fulfilling the law, loving the Lord your God. And he's also, you'll hear him talk about the fact that the other big commandment in the law, which is love your neighbor as yourself, these people who follow Jesus, partly because they're not big shots, they love their lowliest neighbors in Jesus' name. They are humble people. They are marginalized people. They don't have, they're not power brokers in the world, and they just love on the poor and the needy and the broken and the helpless, the very people Jesus ministered to. They're all about ministering to those people, and that is the fulfillment of the Torah. And it's interesting if you read historically about James outside of the New Testament. James, the Lord's brother, this was a lifelong concern of his to show that these followers of Jesus are actually the ones who are really keeping Torah. Unlike the apostate Jewish leaders who are all about the law on paper, it's these people who follow Jesus. They're the true Torah keepers, the true law keepers. That was a big deal for him until they, he was actually stoned by those Jew, apostate Jewish leaders in the year AD 62. So that's one theme through the book we're going to see. You want to obey the law of God? Love Jesus. Love little people in his name. The second thing that James is going to talk about again and again in this letter is he's going to talk about the world. Now think about who he's writing to. You're the 12 tribes, and he's also going to talk about kind of an enemy force, a hostile force that he will call the world. You might remember later in in chapter 4, he's actually going to tell these Jewish followers of Jesus, friendship with the world means you're an enemy of God. So the, the world, well, what is the world? The world. This is something I think a lot of us don't necessarily understand when we read the New Testament. Because when you, when a lot of Christians today hear the world, I'll be honest, what they think of is culture. You know, you want to stay away from culture. There's all the stuff that people, non-Christians are doing, and as long as you stay away from all that stuff that non-Christians are doing, you're not worldly. That's actually a pretty shallow understanding of what the New Testament actually means when it talks about the world. Let's just think about the background of this phrase for James. So going all the way back into Israel's prophets, if you read the prophets, you'll, you'll know that there's, there's a long history throughout, throughout Israel's story, a long history of God's faithful people who really believe in him. Like Abraham, they trust him, they love him, they're obedient to him, their hearts are soft toward him. Those people are, all through Israel's history, they end up being oppressed by Gentile powers, Think about the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Syrians, for example, and and others. They're oppressed by Gentile powers, but you know who else oppresses them throughout Israel's story? The wealthy, powerful leaders in Israel. So many times the prophets like train their guns on the big shots in Israel, and you're the ones who are oppressing the poor. You're exploiting the needy. 
And so there's this weird, like, Gentile powers that end up kind of having God's faithful under their heel, but also within Israel, there's this corruption. And then we get to Daniel. And Daniel has this, remember Dr. Ennis preached on this a few weeks ago, Daniel sees this image, and, you know, it's kind of these descending metals from the most valuable gold down to, finally, iron and clay, and it's these four empires of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and finally Rome. And it's interesting, he sees toward the end of that fourth kingdom, he sees that after these four empires, he sees the feet of this image. And you remember the feet? The feet are mingled iron, that's the metal of the fourth kingdom, and clay. And the iron of that fourth kingdom is going to mingle with the clay of Israel, because Israel is the clay. There are a number of places, the prophets, where God says to Israel, you're the clay, I'm the potter. Now, we've already seen in Israel's history that, weirdly, Gentile powers tend to end up oppressing alongside of corrupt Jewish leadership. Now, we've got Daniel telling us, in the days of that fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, he didn't know it was Rome, but we do, there's going to be an alliance of the fourth kingdom's like iron power with the clay that's the that's the image God uses to describe his people and then there's this little stone of Messiah's kingdom that's going to hit the feet hit that alliance of iron and clay and blow the whole thing to pieces and Messiah's kingdom is going to fill the earth and all the rest is going to blow away like chaff so this is interesting this mingling of kind of Gentile and Israelite oppression then Daniel says the iron and clay are going to mix Then, think about being in the early church with that background. So the early church, they're watching. They've been been Jews their whole lives. They've been watching and listening as this ping pong match goes back and forth between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And they were watching throughout his life. And what they witnessed was a really weird alliance forming against Jesus. And it's an alliance of the Herods, like Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, Herod Agrippa, who later killed John the Baptist and eventually uh, killed uh, John, the brother of uh, James, the brother of John, they're watching these Herods, these representatives of Roman rule, and Pilate's in there too, and they're allied with the apostate leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the rulers of the synagogues. They're joined in with the Roman power and they're fighting against the Messiah. And the the early church heard Jesus talk about this alliance. He was walking outside the temple one day, and, you know, the disciples are like, do you see this temple that Herod built? And Jesus says, it's going to come down, and I'm going to raise, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll I'll raise it up. Of course, he's talking about his body, but he's foretelling that this temple, you know, this mighty thing is going to end up being rubble, and my body, resurrected, is going to become the real temple of God. And then they saw him executed, by that power, Herod, Pilate, the council, the Sanhedrin, they join in, they execute Jesus. Then they see Jesus alive after that execution. And what they realized when they saw the resurrected Jesus was that that little stone, that little stone, this is it. That little stone has hit the feet of this image and God is going to shatter and scatter the Roman iron and the apostate Jewish clay because that kingdom of the world... (laughs) the world being Gentile power and apostate religious power, that world is now, that kingdom of the world is now the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. And what that meant was they were living at the end of the world. They were actually living at the end of the world. That mighty image 
massive Gentile domination, finally allying itself with apostate Jewish leadership. That whole image is blown away. That world is gone, and a new world is is arrived, and a new kingdom is here. Not the end of creation. See, when you and I hear about the end of the world, we think about the end of creation, like the end of the time-space continuum. That's not the world. The world is not creation. The world is not even culture. The world is not stuff people do with creation. The world is these dominant values and powers that set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. It's Psalm 2. The world is the, the, the rulers and powers and authorities and dominions and big names that set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. That's the world. And I, if you think I'm, I'm, I'm stretching here, like is that really what the New Testament means when it talks about the world? Well, think about what Jesus said to his disciples before he was crucified. He said, what does he say? He said, the world is going to hate you. And notice what he says about the, notice how he identifies the world. He said, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. Even watching the last three years of my ministry, it hated me before it hated you. The word that is written in their Torah must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So he tells them right up front. Let me talk to you about the world. You've watched the Herod, you know, Herod going after me. You've, you're going to see Pilate. You're, you're, you're watching the Jewish leaders that oppose me. And that world, they hated me. That world's going to hate you. And it's actually written in their Torah. It's written in the Torah of that world. They hated me without a cause. He says that in John. So that's, that's what the 12 tribes mean. You're the fulfillment of God's work, his promises to Abraham, and all the work that God's been doing since Abraham. And the world is going to pass away, and you're going to be the true Torah keepers in this new creation. But you'll notice the second thing, he, the other descriptor, that's, that's the first thing I want to just kind of camp on is 12 tribes, but the other descriptor in verse 18, that they're the first fruits. This is crazy. So the old world's passing away, and you're the true Israel from here. And in this new world, this new age, you are the first chiefs, the first little crop, the first harvest. And what that means is that it's precisely by being against the world that these, this little band of Jewish followers of Jesus, they're actually for the world. That as they stand with Jesus, they stand with Messiah against all that hostility of the Gentile powers and the Jewish powers, they're actually standing for humanity. They're standing for human beings as God meant them to be. They're standing for this new thing where God is going to create new humans who are reformed and renewed and rebuilt around the Messiah. This is the world Jesus came to save. I absolutely love Darian Lockett's way of expressing this. He says, this, th- these readers, this audience that James is writing to, they are the leading edge of God's work in recreating the world. They are the first portion of what God will finally do in all of creation in the end. They're the first blades out of the ground of a new creation. Richard Bauckham puts it this way. He says, the messianic renewal of Israel, that's what's going on with these 12 tribes, the messianic renewal of Israel certainly has the messianic renewal of the world as its goal. Israelites who have received new birth as children of God, thus constituting the renewed Israel, they're the first sheaf of the full harvest to come. The new birth of Messianic Jews, the renewal of Israel, is the representative beginning of God's new creation of all things. They are, as Paul will later say, the stump of Israel 
that now begins to grow with Gentile branches grafted in. And that finally brings us to us, and I'm almost done. What this letter then is going to say to us in a different, but maybe not so very different context. Because what I really want to try to drive home to you, my dear little flock, in these weeks as we're exploring this letter is, you also are God's new creation. That's what I want to drive home. You are this new creation too. Now you're not first fruits. These early readers were the first fruits. You're like 21st century fruits. You are not the nucleus. You're members of a now worldwide organism that is has been formed and nourished by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are not native branches like these readers of the physical seed of Abraham. You are branches grafted in, but you are the new creation. This letter is speaking to you. These are your grandparents, the first readers, but these, th- these are your people. You've been, you're part of this very same thing. And what I want to try to help us see practically then as we think about the fact that we are, we are the new creation, you look around the world, that's, that's what God sees as he looks out over the world, is he sees his people. He sees the followers of Jesus. They are where the life is, and everything else is going to die. And what I want to try to just lean into over the weeks we have in this letter is, your calling, your calling as new creation is you and I are to develop integrity in that identity. God says you're the new creation. We need to live with integrity as new creation. God says you're the true Israel. We need to figure out what it looks like to be the new Israel with integrity. Like those first readers, what God is calling us to as new creation is you and I need to learn how to become fully the new humans God says we are. To become fully and experientially and expressively the true Israel that God says we are. God had a plan for a new people with Abraham. You're the plan. I'm the plan. And it's learning how to have integrity in that identity that this letter is going to help us with. There are two sides to the coin of that integrity. One is maturity. The thing, I've said to you many, many times, I want Christians, I want us in this church, by God's grace, to not just think about Christianity as devotions and some ethical rules. (laughs) Christianity is about becoming fully human again. I've said to you, I'm a Christian humanist. Because the Bible is Christian humanism. It is Jesus making humans fully human again in all that that entails. And maturity, therefore, is the goal. Not just morality. Maturity. You can have a lot of morality and not have maturity. I know kids, I grew up in a home like this, where there were so many rules, so much morality, and honestly, you could get so like, hung up on all the rules, you weren't actually growing in maturity. You didn't, you didn't understand how to like, form loves and, and purpose and like a, a big vision that sometimes isn't really about the rules it's about like which direction you're going you know and and so it's not just morality yes there's morality you know you have to have a skeleton but the flesh and the blood of the thing is maturity I want to grow into the fullness of the kind of love that my father has the kind of wisdom that my father has an understanding of reality that comes from my father a way of responding to that reality that looks like my father that's maturity so I can rule his kingdom Maturity is one side, and the other, I must say, and, and this, we, if you guys haven't figured out this is real by now, then, you know, it's, it, you'll, you'll figure it out eventually because it's coming. The flip side of integrity, one side's maturity. The flip side is resistance. You're a resistance movement as new creation. 
If you're going to follow Jesus, like these first readers, under somewhat different powers, but you're going to have times and you're going to have to just be a nonconformist, refuse to conform to powers and ideologies and value systems and visions of the good and social norms and trends that either actively or indifferently oppose Jesus and his kingdom. You've probably heard me say this before. I don't know where this quote came from, but I think it's helpful. (laughs) You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you odd. And if you're not up for that, you don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. There are going to be a lot of ideologies, value systems, social trends, social norms, and you're going to be outside of those. You're going to be weird. You're going to not fit, and that is just fine because I'm with Jesus. There are a lot of things in this world that actively or indifferently just oppose Jesus' rule. They ignore Jesus' rule. They're indifferent to Jesus' rule. And the virtues and the values of his kingdom are not things that are necessarily making the news and making, you know, the top ten. And you're into that stuff, and you're a resistance movement to the stuff that tries to pull you away from it. This is authentic humanity. And you've got to realize as you watch Jesus, it, was there ever a more authentic human being than Jesus? You know, authenticity is all the buzz right now. There was never a more authentic human being than Jesus Christ. And how, what kind of a backlash did that produce? You know, you want to be authentic? You want to be like a real human, like Jesus? You want to follow him and being a true human? Well, it's going to bring some backlash from the powers that really are promoting delusions about humanity. There are powers in this world that are making a lot of money and getting a lot of benefits off selling false ideas about what a human being is. And if you're an authentic human, you don't, need, you don't need to be like, you know, thumbing your nose at them. You just be an authentic human. There's going to come backlash. You're a resistance movement. The world hated Christ. These powers and value systems. I don't mean your neighbor. I don't mean your neighbors. I just mean the, 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 the systems of power and value in the world that are trying to promote delusions about human flourishing. They hated Christ. They are going to hate you. You're going to be viewed as a subversive, as a troublemaker, as in the way of certain social agendas. And yet, we're just so calm about this. Well, most of us are calm about this. Because slowly, incrementally, you know, not clamorously, not violently, but slowly and incrementally, the way living things actually grow, you and I know that the Canaan of this world is going to become the Eden of God. And we are the new creation, right at the heart of that. Now, I'll tell you, and we're going to talk about this next sermon, that's going to involve suffering. But I want to close with this from Dallas Willard. Lest this seem like it's just heavy, because it will involve suffering. I just think Willard just hits it out of the park here. He says, there's almost universal belief in the immense difficulty of being a real Christian. Almost universal belief in the immense difficulty of being a real Christian. This is why a lot of people are fake Christians, by the way. But people understand, if they really understand Christianity, they know it's, it's difficult to be a real Christian. The vast, grim cost of discipleship is something we hear constantly emphasized. Now listen to what he says. He says, we would do far better to lay a clear, constant emphasis upon the cost of non-discipleship. Kierkegaard reminds us it costs a man just as much or even more to go to hell than to come to heaven. Narrow, exceedingly narrow, is the way to perdition. The cost of discipleship, says Willard, though it may take all we have, is small 
when compared to the lot of those who don't accept Christ's invitation to be a part of his company in the way of life. And beloved, sometimes that's what we need to just keep our eyes on. Is there a cost in following Jesus? Is there a cost to not following Jesus? Hudson Taylor once said, after years on the mission field in China, he said, I never made a sacrifice. Because it just seemed absurd to speak about cost and sacrifice when you're walking with the Lord of life and the King of Kings. May God put that heart in us. Lots more to come. But for now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for James, Pastor James, for these first readers. We thank you for their example to us of suffering and patience. And we pray, Lord God, that whatever trials or afflictions may come to us in our time as we seek to be this authentic human organism that you are making in Christ, we pray that even as we experience joy, Lord, we know we'll experience trials. We pray that our hearts will be full of love for you and that there will seem to be no sacrifice at all to us as we consider the privilege it is to be the true Israel of God. In Jesus we ask, amen.